I'd like to thank Nom Nom for sponsoring this episode. If you've listened for a while, folks, you'll know I'm a big dog lover. Having lost a long-time four-legged best friend last year and gaining a new puppy this year, they're a part of the family for sure. That's why I'm excited for you fellow dog lovers out there to get your hands on fresh food made with whole ingredients backed by veterinary science and make sure your dog is getting the best diet possible with Nom Nom. Nom Nom is full of fresh proteins and vegetables like beef, chicken, peas, pork, kale and more not hidden away in the food but visible your dog's health starts in the gut a better diet means softer coats more energy, better breath and we all love that dog breath don't we and smaller more consistent stools your dog can't tell you if they're healthy but you can tell when their health improves so how does Nom Nom work? you tell them about your pup's age, weight allergies and protein preferences they'll tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them straight to you, you can store them in the fridge or freezer until mealtime they'll then give you specific instructions on how to transition your dog from foods like kibble to always fresh nom nom for best results finally you can watch your dog clean out their favourite dish and see that tail wagging ready to make the switch to fresh order nom nom today go to trynom.com slash that ufo and get 50% off your first order plus free shipping plus nom nom comes with a money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days nom nom will refund your first order no fillers no nonsense just nom nom this is leslie kane and you're listening to that ufo podcast Hi everyone and welcome to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined on today's show by an author, lecturer, researcher and truly one of the prominent speakers of the last few decades in the UFO conversation. It is my privilege to welcome Mr. Richard Dolan to the podcast. Richard, welcome. Andy, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Very excited for this one. And um, Richard, I almost hate to ask you this question given how well I know you and your work and what you've done for many years, but... There's a lot of new listeners and viewers who have come into the UFO conversation in the last weeks and months, given how much coverage it's had, especially in the United States. And if someone newer to this topic is hearing and seeing you for the first time, how would you describe your part in the UFO conversation? That's a totally fair question. Uh, I've been studying UFOs for about 30 years. Um, I've been public uh, as an author, I guess, for a little more than 20 years. But I got into this in the 1990s originally. I was back at in those days working on a PhD in United States diplomatic history, Cold War strategy, things like that. And I fell into the UFO subject. I saw a UFO book actually by UK author Timothy Good called Above Top Secret, The Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. There's a title to catch your attention when you're browsing through a bookstore. And I thought, wow, Worldwide UFO Cover-Up. Even in the 90s, people knew that there were claims of a UFO cover-up, of course. And, uh, you know, I was studying the administration of President Harry Truman in the 1940s. And so there was a lot of overlap there in terms of the, uh, what was discussed. I mean, I even I knew back then that there was this talk about Roswell in the 1940s. So what was that about? So I, I bought I, I looked through Tim's book. And uh, the, the strange thing back then was that I recognized a, a number of names that I had studied in my academic world. And here he was putting them in this UFO book. And I thought, well, I've never made that connection to UFOs in my academic work. What's going on here? Uh, he had a bunch of documents that looked like they might be uh, legitimate. And I kept reading and I bought the book. And I 
really all that I wanted to do to start out was simply resolve one question, which was, is this a thing? Is there anything to these claims that there was a UFO something and that there was a cover-up? Because I was studying that exact period of time where this allegedly happened. And in my own life, I just did not want to have this big question mark hanging over my head. Like, is this a thing or is this not a thing? So I thought I would just take a month or two or maybe three months tops out of my life to resolve that issue. That was 30 years ago. I'm still doing it. Uh, What I determined pretty early on, frankly, was that, oh, yes, there absolutely was, no question, a significant UFO problem for uh, national security people, particularly the United States, which is what I started out studying, Uh, eventually started looking at other nations as well. But Within the U.S., it became obvious that the U.S. military was encountering these things that did not make sense. And we knew this because in the starting in the late 1970s, the United States passed what was called the Freedom of Information Act, or actually they strengthened the Freedom of Information Act in, in the 70s. And that allowed for the release of quite a few, many UFO-related documents. And so you could just read them. Uh, some of them uh, aren't all that incredible, but some really are. And uh, they describe, in many cases, just violations of sensitive airspace by objects described as disc-shaped with incredible capabilities and maneuverabilities and speeds and evasiveness. And when you start reading, if you read one or two or three, you might think, okay, someone might be misinterpreting this or that. But you start reading dozens and then hundreds, and you start to think this is actually a real phenomenon who is behind it? And one question simply led to a dozen more. So I thought, well, who's behind it? And you you read the old documents and you see analysts in the 1940s and 1950s asked the exact same questions that we ask today. Is this the Russians? Is this a secret American project? Is this something else? So that just took me down a series of rabbit holes that I have never, ever left. So what I am, I'm a historian of the UFO subject. I study the sightings, I study the politics, and I study the, uh, I guess you could say, the development of ufology itself, that is the study of this. Like how, where were we in the 1950s? Where were we in the 60s and 70s? And where are we today? Uh, That's of great interest to me. So it's really the entire subject uh, gets me very interested. The sightings and the politics are probably the two biggest things, the cover-up. So that's where I've been. And uh, sometimes it gets me labeled as a conspiracy theorist, something you're not supposed to believe in these days. But, well, I don't mind. The world does have conspiracies, and the UFO cover-up is very likely the greatest of them all. I can't disagree with that. And you say that one question leads to a dozen more. Do you feel at this point in your research that you've got more answers than questions, or do you still feel there's an exponential list of questions? That's an awesome question. I have more answers than I used to have, that is for sure, but there's a lot of questions that keep popping up, and I have no doubt that there are some questions I'll never have a true answer to. But I've answered a number of questions for myself, absolutely. Uh, My very, very first question I answered quickly, which was, was this an actual topic of interest to U.S. national security high-level people? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. That was a significant concern to them. And, and as far as I could see, it never stopped being a concern to them. It has always been one. So, uh, but a lot of other questions uh, have, have, you know, been raised and sometimes answered. Um, 
I asked, you know, I asked the question, are, are these, are these from here or not from here? Are they from our civilization or are they not from our civilization? That's obviously a fundamental question. And I think the answer to that is uh, yes to both. <laughs> they, they are, some of them are, in my opinion, are definitely not from our civilization as we understand it. Uh, but I think some probably are. Yeah. So I think that we've developed covertly uh, some capability to do some level of replication of exotic technology. I don't think that we've got the ability truly to duplicate what these other beings, and I think they are other beings, what they can do. But I think we have a, a significant covert world. Sometimes I've called it a breakaway civilization that does exist and that does uh, work very, very hard to understand this exotic tech and science and probably to, to catch up to these other beings in whatever way they can. I think it's a secret, uh, almost like a secret cold war that's going on there. There are a lot of different ways I wanted to take this interview. So I hope this is one of many, Richard. Um, so hopefully it goes well enough you come back. And I said to that to you before we hit record. So I'm going to take you back as far as December 2017. Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Kane, Lehelene Cooper pen the article in the New York Times, which opens the door to, to where we are now. And it's been a whirlwind almost six years as we record this. But how did we get to that point? Because there were articles in newspapers and magazines and websites many times over before that. Why did this one hit so big, so hard, and not only kick open the door, but leave the door open that sort of set off this chain reaction to, to where we are now? I think researchers are still debating this and still trying to figure it out. Why? Why that? Well, one obvious answer to that is that you had Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, who are both respected journalists in the, in the mainstream establishment press, who have both been sympathetic to UFOs for years. And Helene Cooper is not a UFO journalist. She's really a, a defense department. That's her beat, the U.S. Defense Department military but she participated. But Leslie and Ralph um, are, are well known as sympathetic to the UFO, especially Leslie. And the fact that they got it published in the New York Times was a bombshell. Now, the real question is why, excuse me, why did the New York Times allow that, those articles to go forward? They did two articles that day. And that's the question. I've, I've developed my own theories about it. I, I, I think that it's correct. I'll just share you what I believe which is that you, you have to go back to the formation of Tom DeLonge's organization to the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, TTSA, which he had, be, had been in the works for actually a couple of years. Uh, in 2017, he finally gets it going with their big press conference in just October, two months earlier than the article you mentioned. And many people are familiar with that, of course. That's where we got to see uh, Lou Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, Hal Putoff was there. Uh, Jim Semivan, um, and they, you know, made some very, very bold statements. That press conference, there were some mistakes that they offered. The uh, the, the Mylar balloon as a UFO and all of that was a, was a mistake. But really, they had a very big impact. And what became clear was that Lou Elizondo was someone who was quite important to all of this. And so, I think if you're the New York Times, you realize this is a story that's not going to go away. So Leslie and Ralph, uh, from what I have understood from them, 
and from some public statements they've made also, is that they just were able to persuade the New York Times that this is a story, it's legit, it's bona fide, and I, and I suspect that the New York Times, which has always been hostile to UFOs, always, um, I think their leadership realized this is a story that's going to break. Let us get out in front of it. And if you notice, when uh, you read those articles, they they did a few things to minimize the impact of what was being said. Uh, this this was known to me explicitly at the time. It's now much more widely acknowledged. But they brought in certain skeptical voices in those articles that were utterly meaningless to the to the article. But they just did that just to tamp down any enthusiasm people might have had. So I, actually, the New York Times piece could have been much more much stronger than it even was. But what I think you see and what we have been seeing, to answer your question, is that we're seeing a battle of factions, I believe, within the national security leadership of the United States, uh, which has always been the case relating to UFOs or pretty much anything. You know, ruling elites throughout history have always had factions. Caesar was a faction against Pompey 2,000 years ago. There are always uh, competing groups. And within the UFO cover-up, there, this has long been understood, that there have been groups that opposed the secrecy and that groups that supported the secrecy. And I think we're seeing a variation of that playing out today. I mean, there's much more we can say about it. But I think Christopher Mellon was very important in all of this. He was very well-placed. He was able to uh, arrange for TTSA to connect with, with Leslie and Ralph of the New York Times and uh, also got the article in Politico, which we often forget about, but that came out at the same time. So I think Chris Mellon is one of the key behind-the-scenes players in this. He was able to make it happen. And then the thing is, because the New York Times covered this story as openly as it did, as, as sympathetically as it did, that in a sense gave permission to the rest of the Western media establishment to look at this and to, to follow up, which most, I mean, frankly, most Western media did not, but some did. I think most notably in the United States, there was Tucker Carlson, who until recently over at, at Fox covered uh, the UFO subject uh, extremely well for a mainstream, a mainstream guy. He did an ex exceptional job. So there, I think it opened the door for some other voices to step in and to, and to pick it up. So uh, now it hasn't led to disclosure. <laughs> it hasn't led to a statement by the president of the United States or some other national leader. But uh, there has been, as you've noted, uh, an uptick in the conversation. It's no longer the, the third rail of public discourse. You can talk about UFOs or UAP and not get ridiculed. Uh, it's a very different situation now. So that's a positive thing. We still have a long, long way to go before we have a genuinely adult-level conversation about this subject in within the mainstream. I think we're we're not even close to there. But uh, inch by inch, we're we're getting toward a better, more meaningful conversation about the subject. So we'll see where this leads. I'll play devil's advocate for a moment and ask you: Do you think, in a way, that the article didn't have the lasting impact we wanted? And what I mean by that is that since then, the New York Times has never followed up or any other major news outlet in the same big way. I think the closest we got was the rumored crash retrieval article that then appeared to be heavily censored. It came out around a year, year and a half um, ago. Um, 
And then the David Grush story, which appears to be the natural successor of the next point on this journey, was passed on, as we know, by the Washington Post and New York Times. We've heard due to time constraints and David Grush wanting the story out quicker than potentially those outlets would have wanted. Do you think that was the last big talking point? And could there have been more of a lasting impact? Or has there been a deliberate attempt to keep the story down by some of those factions in the background? Yeah, I I think you and I may be on the similar track here, actually. Because what I think has been going on is that, uh, as you rightly point out, the New York Times did... Well, they did a little bit of follow-up after that initial two articles, but all of the positive follow-up was by Leslie and Ralph themselves. They did an article about a, a little over a year later, if you recall, in 2019. They did another uh, pretty very good article, actually, in the summer of 2020, where they came very close to getting an acknowledgement of, of actual genuine crash retrievals of UFOs. I mean, that was a statement by Eric Davis, uh, Dr. Davis, that they got in there. So they did some, but you are right in that the New York Times other than with Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, really did no meaningful follow-up whatsoever, nor did any of the other major establishment outlets, Washington Post, which is, in my view, really little more than a CIA outlet anyway. But uh, you've got the New York Times, you've got the Post, you've got uh, all of the major television networks, particularly, I'm thinking of the United States, the only, the only outlet in the U.S. of the mainstream sort that followed up, as I mentioned before, was Fox with Tucker Carlson. And at Fox, it was only Tucker Carlson. There was really nobody else there. He was, he was really the standalone voice. So I think if you're suggesting that the establishment was very... Um, reticent or even hostile to the story, I would say that's probably true. I think, I think the establishment was not, you know, we have to understand, you know, how, how is our media set up? I mean, we don't, we don't have a free establishment media. It's obvious. Uh, Anyone who's done any kind of study of something like Operation Mockingbird way back during the Cold War, this was CIA, explicit manipulation of mainstream media and paying off hundreds of U.S. journalists without the public knowing. They just had them on the payroll. Uh, this is an old game, and it has never stopped. So when you when when talks about establishment media, not, I'm not talking about YouTube people like you and me, but establishment media is very, very controlled. You might as well be talking about the old Soviet model. So when, when the establishment media is not touching the story, that should tell us something. That should tell us that what came out originally in December of 2017 was not welcome by many f- players in the upper level of the national security elite. They, I don't think that they were happy about this. But what, what they've done is, I think, very astutely taken as much control over the narrative as possible. They've done a very good job uh, you know, with these so-called UAP hearings that we've seen in the United States over the last couple of years, uh, which I think were designed to be as boring as possible and also uh, really didn't give a whole lot of information and also also trying to reframe this subject because there's so much that's missing. The whole history of the UFO phenomenon has now gone missing in all these public conversations. You'll notice uh, the, the, the Navy, the Air Force, the uh, Pentagon, are they're talking about UAP all of the 21st century as if the entire 20th century never existed uh, that's a lot of history. So so they're able to pretend, in other words, that this is a new phenomenon. They are just now beginning to investigate it. And they can play this 
game of pretend by saying, well, we're going to look into it and we'll get back to you when we learn something. Meanwhile, <laughs> you know, there are, uh, there's so much overwhelming testimony through the 20th century of UFO crash retrievals, acquisition of bodies, both alive and dead, and on and on. I've, I've gone into this in excruciating detail. None of this has come up. Now with David Grush, as you just mentioned, he is the latest, and he, I think, is potentially of great significance. He's a, a young guy. He has some very good bona fides. His background is very, um, very checkable. You know, we can investigate who he is. He was a member of the UAP task force for two years, from 2019 to 2021. He's in a position to know a few things. He was working with the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office. That's very prestigious, major spy agency. They do all spy satellites. And he has come forward and has made some very startling and dramatic claims that, you know, that uh, the Pentagon was illegally withholding information from the UAP task force. Uh, he stated that when he complained about this, he himself was subject to illegal um, attacks on on him professionally. I don't know the details of those attacks, but he's talked about it. He uh, filed a, a complaint with the inspector uh, general of the Pentagon. He won his complaint. And what he has said is that we have a multiple craft, multiple craft. And he, uh, I think he said bodies. And he said that this is dangerous. He says that people have died in, in their encounters. He didn't get into any specifics. So he's made some very dramatic claims. The, of course, the criticism that you hear against him is that, well, he's provided no proof. Well, I think it's a little early in the game to criticize him for that. Let's, my attitude is let's just take this one step at a time and realize that he doesn't have, he hasn't given us proof just yet. But I'm, I'm inclined to say, let's wait and see with him because he does. I've spoken off the record to a number of individuals who know him. I've not spoken with Grush myself. And I know he has many, many prestigious individuals willing to back him up. So for now, uh, that's enough for me. And, and I'm willing to wait and see what he's got, if he can bring anything forward. I'd like to thank Liquid IV for sponsoring this episode. Folks, you've heard me bang on about my own health and fitness journey the last year or so and how it's true that by looking after yourself, you just feel better. Staying hydrated is key to having the energy to get through your daily routine feeling good. That's where Liquid IV is the category winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you may be missing in that daily routine. Eating and drinking healthy can sometimes be boring, but the range of flavours offered by Liquid IV takes care of that, with lemon and lime, pina colada and tropical punch among some of the best, though I'm particularly fond of the strawberry lemonade. Just one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone, containing five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12 and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of premium sports drinks and its non gm GMO and gluten-free, dairy and soya-free too. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code THATUFO at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code THATUFO at liquidiv.com. Yeah, I've said a few times on the podcast, I feel the David Grush story uh, will be judged on the follow-up and what happens if indeed he has handed over what he says he has to Congress and others involved in this topic working in the background, then what comes from that? 
could really be, you know, the fruit that bears from from his work and coming forward. And I wonder, though, similar question to what I asked you about how this came to to be, be in the media. How did this get past those same walls of the Pentagon and classified briefings? Because no doubt in the decades preceding what's happening now, there have been conversations that have threatened to almost get out of those kind of hallowed halls. Why has this story, and we've got to say, been allowed to get this far? Because surely the Air Force and others within government, being as big and powerful and as scary as they are, have Mm. managed to quash this before. Well, I'm not sure if that's the way that I would want to phrase it, because, I, I mean, I've heard this type of thing before. People six years ago said, why would the New York, why would the CIA allow the New York Times to publish those two stories? And I think, you know, we do live in a very controlled uh, information environment, but it, it is not 100% controlled. I mean, we have to recognize there are different forces at play, not only within the establishment, which there are, and I, I do think that's why those stories got out, because there are factions within the Pentagon and within the national security community. But we, we shouldn't sell ourselves, sure, we the people, as a factor in this. In other words, uh, I've been looking at this now. I wrote a book on disclosure 13 years ago. I tried to foresee, you know, how could the end of UFO secrecy occur? And, and if it did, what, how might that affect our world? And, you know, then as now, I, I recognized, I think that there are different forces at play. One that we sometimes overlook is the Internet itself. You know, prior to 1990, there really wasn't an internet to speak of, and it was much, much easier for elites to control public conversations than now. Once the internet came, a series, I don't know if that's my Skype or yours, but I'm just going to get out of there. Oh, that's okay, Uh, yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that. I think that was me. But um, I think the internet has been a significant factor, and in fact, if it were not for the internet, I don't think TTSA would have formed. Uh, when it did to because there was there was all of these these years of momentum developing behind the UFO subject for years and years. Uh, I don't think we should forget that it was a tremendous amount of public pressure building up from below, and that I think did affect uh, some of the if I can call them factions within the Pentagon within the national security intelligence community. Yes, uh, I think so. So to say, why did they allow? I don't know if I would phrase it that way because. We know, for example, that when Lou Elizondo had come out as a public person a few years ago, there were significant attacks against him by the Pentagon. They tried to uh, say, oh, he never ran the ATIP program. That was a lie. Uh, they had to retract that. They, they said a number of other things to try to diminish his stature. So it was obvious then that they were not happy that Elizondo came out. So so why was he able to come out? Well, he, because he was able, because he had some support behind him and there were people who opposed him. And I think that's what we are looking at. So I would, the only area where I might quibble with the way you phrase it is that I don't think that we're looking at a monolithic structure. I think we're looking at a structure where there are, uh, we have a kind of labyrinthian bureaucracy where you've got groups fighting against groups. I don't think it's a unified thing. Well, and, uh, after disclosure that you co-authored with Bryce Sable, um, you've asked some key questions within that book, and that includes how disclosure may happen, like you say. And I wonder, Diana Pasulka recently commented uh, with Jay from Project Unity, who I know you know, um, that we are potentially seeing multiple disclosures happening at once. 
some at the governmental level, some at the military level, and then at the religious level. And I wonder, is that something you agree with, that they're, they're happening within different compartments? Oh, this is what Bryce recently said. Uh, yeah, I think I, I might agree with that. We, um, we kind of envisioned a different version of how disclosure would happen. Of course, we wrote this book back in 2010. And this was before really five years, four or five years before the internet and social media really started to clamp down, before you started seeing a, a significant tightening of social media and the internet in general, which we're now we, we're seeing quite significantly. So back in those days, we imagined disclosure would happen like an avalanche. In other words, there would be some sighting that could not be denied or some leak, maybe out of WikiLeaks, or uh, as, as actually has turned out, a public statement by a respected official. We thought maybe that's a possibility. We were thinking someone along the lines of like a stature of like Colin Powell or some big shot like that. Uh, we weren't thinking someone like David Grush, but none or Lou Elizondo for that matter. But um, but that did happen. But we we didn't see the avalanche for a while. We didn't see this piling on effect. Uh, it took it's taken six years. So that was, I think, the big difference that. Um, we probably, the big thing we did not anticipate, but I think it's possible we're seeing it now. And I, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm surprised that this is happening, that this has happened, uh, that has gone as far as it has gone. I had not expected that uh, someone like Grush would, would actually make the statements that he did and get, get them publicly out there. So kudos to him, kudos to Ross Coltart also for interviewing him and f to Leslie and Ralph for writing the article about him. I think that was all very, um, very helpful for our public conversation. So the real question is, are we gonna see the, the um, effect of rats deserting a sinking ship? That's really what I'm wondering. And I, I do think it's possible. I don't know that it will happen, but we're hearing rumors of other whistleblowers, claims of other whistleblowers that are out there. Not all of them are named, uh, but claims that there are, you know, a dozen or more craft uh, that are secreted away in various installations. We've heard that. We, I don't have any more specific information. Claims about bodies have been put forward just recently. I don't know uh, where these people are getting their information, but they are circulating around. And so it is possible that we are seeing that we might see something of an avalanche. That would be really quite interesting. But the other thing to keep in mind is that in, in our little UFO community bubble, <laughs> uh, this is a huge thing. Uh, we all have friends who don't follow this subject. I certainly yeah. have friends who don't follow UFOs at all. I was speaking to uh, a couple of them just less than a week ago. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, this has been out for, for a while, and yet they were oblivious, oblivious to any of this news. It had not heard at all any of it. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who are in a similar position. So as as big as this seems to us, uh, it has not, I don't think it has fully broken through to the point where it's become genuine, widespread conversation in the public. And it could get there. It's possible, but I don't think we're quite there. And so my attitude is, there's some toothpaste that's squeezed out of the tube. And I think they're, they're still in effort to put some of that toothpaste back in the tube, if that's possible. And if you can't put it back in the tube, 
they're just going to wipe it off the counter and put screw the top back on and put that toothpaste away. In other words, it is still possible, even at this point, for all forward motion to stall and for us not to go any further. It's, it is still possible. Um, we've, I, I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, the rest of this year is going to be very interesting. Very interesting. And I don't know how to predict it, to be honest. I just chatted with my uh, longtime friend on this matter, Stephen Bassett, who's the longstanding disclosure advocate and one of the most optimistic people on this subject that I'll ever know. Uh, Steve firmly believes this is going to be the year, the year. He says weeks, not months. And um, I've never been that optimistic. So we'll have to just see how it plays out. Richard, I could swear you have read my next six or seven lines of questions and everything you have just said there. You've jumped all over them, including uh, literally having Stephen Bassett mentioned on there as well and his thoughts. Um, and we're going to get to that in more detail, okay? Sure. You mentioned, though, really interestingly, and it's refreshing to hear you say that, you know, the toothpaste could go back in the tube, literally have that line written down. And I think, uh, as tragic as it is, the, the submersible story that's been taking up the news headlines of the last four or five days, um, we're just seeing, as we record this, that they're finding debris in the, the field where they're searching for the submarine that's gone missing, searching oh, yes. for the Titanic. Um, so it looks like there's been a catastrophic failure. But what that has shown is how a relatively small news story that, let's be honest, in a week, that will be gone from the headlines. If you're listening to this at the end of June or into July, that story will have been moved on and forgotten about. But it's already taken over the headlines. David Grush's story is gone from the the mainstream media as little as it was there, the short time it was there. And I think that just goes to show there's always going to be something else. Small, a big story. We've got the looming Russia situation in the background with Ukraine still that's always in the headline and has been now for well over a year. And I see so many folks online and influencers who I respect or I keep up to date with what they're doing, who seem so certain this is definitely happening. It's this summer. And I'll just say, including Stephen Bassett, like you say, have strongly suggested that this is a summer for disclosure. Realistically for you, you say you can't predict where this is going to go. What's well, your... one thing I, 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 oh, did you finish? I didn't want to jump no, no, ahead of you. I, I was going to say, like, what would be your best case scenario that you realistically think where could we be by the end of the year? But feel free to come in with whatever you were well, going to I, say. I, I'll just say this, uh, and I will answer your question to the best that I can. But I think we have, um, you mentioned the war in Ukraine and Russia, and I, I don't want to get into that whole thing and get you into trouble. I have, no, I no. have an analysis of that whole thing, which is counter, exactly counter to everything that you hear in the Western media. And I think that it's been, uh, that, that has been covered so dishonestly uh, and, and maliciously dishonestly to the extent that if, if you... If someone's in the West and they're trying to follow that whole thing based on Western media, they will never, ever, ever understand what actually is going on there. They'll never get it. So it's it's a dishonest portrayal of, of the single most important geopolitical event of our time. They, Our media, in other words, is part of an establishment that cannot be trusted for really for anything. And that includes for the UAP, UFO information. They are not honest players. We have to understand this. I think I think people generally... And you know, most of the time they realize, yeah, we have a corrupt situation, a corrupt media. It's more than corrupt. It's captured. It's captured. In other words, there are powerful interests that completely, truly control uh, the information, the established point of view that comes to us. Uh, you know, we went through two plus years of this through COVID lockdowns and all of the beating us over the head with that propaganda. And so uh, people, I think, were kind of... <laughs> 
the, the masks have been ripped off and we can see this system for what it is, at least those of us who care to look at it. So there's not an honest, we don't have an honest media in this. There are some good journalists. I think Leslie and Ralph, for example, are honest players. They do good work. But the media establishment as a whole is fundamentally dishonest and cannot be trusted. So my attitude is what I'm, whatever their message is going to be on UAP or UFOs, I'm expecting it to be coming from a point of view of, of severe dishonesty. Um, it's like, what, you know, for example, what, what is missing? What are they not talking about? One thing they're not talking about is the history of this subject because to talk about the history implicates the, the government in a cover-up. They can't, they cannot go there. The the United States government cannot allow itself, in my view, to be implicated in uh, 80 plus years of lies to the public. That's just too messy. That opens up too many questions. And I mean, all kinds of, if people might actually start wondering, well, you lied about UFOs. Did you lie about 9-11? Did you lie about JFK? Did you lie about any number of other things? Did you lie about COVID? This is not a good place for them to be to acknowledge that there's been an 80-year series of lies about UFOs. And so the history has been kept from us. Another thing that no, nothing is, is not being discussed is the ongoing, sheer, vast quantity of UFO sightings that take place around the world every week. This, it's not like this is a thing that is in the past. You know, we ac- acquired a craft here or there and a body here and there. No. There are black triangles hovering over your neighborhood at 2.30 in the morning on any given night or over my neighborhood. They are being recorded and seen everywhere. What are they doing hovering at 100 meters over people's homes? I'd like to know. Uh, These reports come in all the time to uh, citing report websites that can accept them. I'd like to know what is going on. None of these questions are being asked. Uh, They're not even being asked in the UFO community essentially, and they're certainly not being asked in the major media. There's, there's so much going on with this subject. And then let's we could talk about ab- alleged abductions, if, if one wants to go there. What are those? I do believe those happen. And so much more. This is a very deep, deep subject that, uh, <laughs> look, if this is real, what it means is that there are other beings who have come here from someplace else and are doing something they're act, they haven't just come here and then gone back to their planet after crashing once or twice. They're here. What are they doing? And I don't hear a single question uh, coming. Forget the mainstream media. I don't even hear UFO people talking about this. What's going on right now? What's the agenda? Why are they here? Are, do they have bases under in the oceans, which I, I'm writing a book on this subject right now, ocean-based uh, UFO sightings. I think Yes, they think, I think they do. What is this? What is the scenario? So by the end of this year, what, what are we likely to have? Well, we, it is quite possible that we have not moved one inch forward from where we are right now, but it is possible that we've made some, let's call it progress, perhaps by the end of the year. Uh, I certainly do not expect the United States president to make a statement on this matter. I mean, frankly, I don't think it would be possible for him to do so. I mean, I, can anyone imagine Joe Biden making a, a statement about disclosure? How would that even come out? Is he is he able? I mean, literally, is he able to even discuss the matter? I don't think so. So I don't think that's going to happen. <clears throat> um, perhaps, 
perhaps uh, I think the best that we can hope is that there will be another either either Grush will come out with more information that can be examined that will probably kickstart a whole back and forth argument between skeptics and uh, supporters, but that might that might get some traction. Uh, or maybe another whistleblower comes forward because we're hearing about it. And the other thing that is possible is the po- is uh, hearings in the United States Congress, or perhaps even the Senate. There is discussion that hearings on the UAP matter will begin. Now, hearings are different from what we've had in the past, which are just briefings. You know, where a couple of talking heads go in front of a small Senate committee, and they, whether it's Dr. Kirkpatrick of Arrow or uh, St- Stephen uh, Bray, Scott Bray, uh, and Ronald Moultrie, those guys. Hearings are different. Hearings are when Congress will subpoena various witnesses to speak on this matter, whistleblowers. And that could be significant. So I guess let me answer your question this way. If there are hearings scheduled, that could be a, a potential opening in the conversation on this. But I don't, I don't think it's going to lead to disclosure. I don't see that happening this year. I could be wrong. I just don't see it happening. No, that that's all very fair, and you've you've put it well. And I wonder, aside from other news items coming into the the media and taking over the conversation around the globe, are there any other bumps in the road you can foresee for this conversation, whether that would be on the surface or behind the scenes? Yes, absolutely. Because I mean, fundamentally, you have to wonder how much authority even does the United States Congress have in getting to the true origins of the secrecy on this matter. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I um, w- was part of the controversy relating to the so-called Davis-Wilson notes. Now, these came out, uh, these are actually written by Dr. Eric Davis over 20 years ago now. Uh, no, excuse me, 20 years ago, 2000, 2002, 2002. So over 20 years ago. And essentially, that was his interview with Admiral Thomas Wilson, where Wilson is talking off the record and saying, look, I tried to get access to this black budget program to reverse engineer ET tech. I was denied access. And it was a very explosive conversation. As I've said many times, I was actually shown a partial transcript of that back in 2006, long time ago. I've known about it. I've talked about it. Uh, I've talked about it in, in the way that I was able to talk about it for several years. But uh, I've known about it. So when it came out, it, it leaked out fully in 2019. W- what you learn when you study that those detailed notes that Davis wrote is the structure of UFO secrecy, and at least in the Pentagon. And what we see is that in the Pentagon's massive bureaucracy, there are different offices where these programs can be buried. I mean, really buried. So there's an office within the Pentagon called SAPOC, uh, Special Access Program Oversight Committee, SAPOC. And it was through that office, we learn in these notes, that you've got a bunch of special access programs, black budget programs that are buried there, very difficult to find. And you've got programs nested within other programs, nested within those, nested within those. And, and this was what came out there. And, and what we find is that oversight over those programs was honestly little to none, a little bit of oversight by a couple of guys in the Pentagon. That's it. These are run by private contractors. We're talking Lockheed Martin, 
I'm sure Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, you know, the usual suspects. And they, they just do what they want. They, they are the ones who decide who's in and who's not in on the program. Wilson, who at the time was uh, uh, number two, he was, he was head of, deputy head of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He had a very responsible position. He believed that he rightfully should oversee this program that he found. And the contractors sat down with him. They said, no, we're not letting you in. He said, well, I'm just going to go. I'll complain. I'll go up the chain of command and complain. They said, be our guest. We don't care. You're not, we're not afraid of you. He did go back to D.C. He did complain, and he was threatened with his career. He was furious, but he, there was nothing he could do about it. So, so this is a situation, in other words, where the secrecy is so deep. It is so protected. And, and it's largely, a lot of it has been privatized. And so getting to the bottom of this secret, this UFO, UAP secret, it's not easy. And then the other question is, you have to ask. You know, I'm, I'm an American citizen. I'm here in the United States. And we can ask, is the United States government the, the final authority in charge of this? You know, I grew up thinking, oh, sure. Well, it has to be the United States government. What's, who's, who's bigger and badder than the United States government? Well, what you find when you study the, um, the structure of UFO secrecy, just as we, when we look at the structure of power internationally, we see it's, it's not all just one country. The United States is, is an important player. Yes, of course, the U.S. has a military. It's got a massive intelligence community. It's, it's very important operationally. But who's making the executive decisions here? We talk about you know, internationally, places like Davos and the World Economic Forum or the Bilderberg meetings or uh, the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission or the Bohemian Grove and all of these unofficial groups where elite, powerful people get together without government oversight and they just decide what they want the world to be like. And then they go back to their areas and they make it happen. And I think that's the model for the UFO cover-up. So the real question is, I don't think anyone can imagine that U.S. President Joe Biden's running the UFO cover-up. So if he's not running it, then who is? Is it an office within the U.S. government? And I don't think so. I think it's beyond that. I think we're looking at very, very powerful behind-the-scenes groups that have the information, that have access to a tremendous amount of money, that very likely are kind of like a, an international independent mafia which is basically my model for how the world works anyway. It's a series of mafioso organizations. Um, I'm a big fan of the, the Godfather movie, my favorite movie of all time. And uh, you've got the five families of New York. That is my model for how the world is. And I think uh, it's very likely how the UFO cover-up operates as well. I think you've got uh, behind-the-scenes intimidation, blackmail, bribery, threats of all sorts. Uh, this, this secret is kept down at times, I think, through severe levels of intimidation and, and worse. You so I don't think the U.S., the, I don't, just to answer, I don't think the U.S. Congress is, is going to have the ability to get to the bottom of this. They can try and they should try, but how far they're going to get would be very interesting. Yeah, they're always going to get to that extra door, aren't they, that no one's going to answer and no one's going to tell them how to get through that door and that door's going to remain locked as long as that door you know, the people behind it have the will to keep it locked. Yes. Um, you've mentioned on your own show about the, the red line of disclosure. And I just wonder, could you explain in your own words to the listeners and viewers what that is? Yeah, sure. Thank you. 
that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course on twitter it's at ufo uap am and again folks as always keep looking up you never know what you might see it wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer more like a hubcap designed by chaucer a little baroque and quite steampunk like alice was playing bass for the parliament of the little fucker hovered right outside of my window and when i shut out the screen he made it an issue I'd like to thank Blendjet for sponsoring this episode. You know I am already a huge fan of the Blendjet too. It's a brilliant bit of kit and many of you have picked one up using my promo code, so thanks. I am delighted to let you know it's just got even better. The new Orbiter drinking lid truly puts the Blendjet 2 into the atmosphere ahead of its competition. It's leak-proof, has a larger opening for thick smoothies with room for a straw, and it's engineered to keep spills at bay. I'm surprised Bob Lazar didn't talk about seeing this tech in the halls at S4. It's easy to use, so it can be operated one-handed, ideal for walking around, camping under the stars, or drinking on the treadmill. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. Don't forget to add the Orbiter lid, and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping.